Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on the rundown. Welcome, everyone, to episode 46 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a production by Workforce LLC. I am your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Michael Chato, SVP and Supply Chain Service Line CEO at GenPack. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Paul. We really appreciate the invite to join you this evening. Appreciate it, man. Um, so we uh, you, we got introduced uh, to you by a, a friend of a friend, um, Gregory Lord, great guy. I hope he listens to this episode. But you grew up in Southeast Pennsylvania. You went to school with Gregory at Dickinson College. Talk to us about how your college experience kind of steered you into the career path that you're on now. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, as you said. Uh, I was on the other side of the tracks from Gregory, right? So they were all the prim and proper rich kids at Wine Missy. I grew up at Muhlenberg. Um, but we did beat them three out of four years in high school football. Big Oh, and they didn't uh, lose a lot. They did not they, lose Wyo a lot. Did not lose, Wyo did not lose a lot. But Muhlenberg, Wine Missing used to be a huge rivalry when I was in school. And then uh, he was three years younger than me. Um, so then we ended up at Dickinson and played football at Dickinson together. Uh, and I got introduced to you through Taylor, actually at a tailgate, uh, you know, with my dad uh, at the Pitt West Virginia game. So ah, there we go. that, that breathes a little bit into how Dickinson, everything fit in my career. My dad, uh, my mom, um, my sister, and my younger sister, all teachers and nurses uh, in the Reading area, um, went to Dickinson, um, actually started out wanting to be a biomolecular uh, chemist to do the forensic science and uh, prove that the government or some other conspiracy agency killed John F. Kennedy. That was my initial goal when I went to college. That's, that's the most um, specific goal that we've ever heard. So wait, did so what happened? What happened? Did did you did the mob tell you to stop yeah, doing your well, research? True, true story. Well, now, so I, I have like I, a twelve or fourteen page paper. My junior high school turned into like a two hundred page dissertation. My senior year of high school um, that explains all the weird nuances from like State Department checks that we have Oswald to get back into the country, the rifles being shipped to the FBI deposit in Dallas. So I'm I'm. I'm sure people aren't interested in this, but uh, what actually happened was I came in Monday after the Super Bowl, freshman year of college, and my professor still remembered to this day, was like, Michael, you look really tired. And I'm like, it was Super Bowl last night. And everyone in my class looked at me like I had like six eyes and like 15 toes. Cause like none of them had any idea what Super Bowl was. And I was like, okay, I'm like, this is not where I want to spend, you know, 60 hours a week in a lab with people who basically don't understand what's going on in like the world of sports and athletics because that's a passion of mine my dad's a high school football coach uh his team's actually in the district finals uh, again this year they won district three last year um you know my grandfather played uh professional baseball uh was an all-state football quarterback so like it runs my mom went to college for field hockey my sister swam my other sister did gymnastics both at westchester uh all in southeast pennsylvania so uh, what Dickinson did provide me, though, to get back to your question, <laughs> uh, was they gave me a, a global experience, right? So, you know, my 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 circle was a little insular, I would say, uh, growing up in Reading, Pennsylvania, with my whole family kind of from the area. Um, you know, like my went to the same high school my dad went to, same Catholic school my mom went to from grade school standpoint. 
So uh, Dickinson gave me a, a much broader uh, global experience because of their you know, foreign exchange student outreach program. And it also gave me access to uh, Sigma Chi, uh, the fraternity chapter. And it was actually through a mentor, uh, Bill Sapo, was one of my mentors in college. Um, he got me excited about the financial industry, allowed me to pivot my major into finance and economics and political science. So I graduated with those three degrees. And then um, that led me into eventually working initially in New York uh, in the investment banking world. And then when the bankruptcy or the, um, the financial collapse of 2008, 2009 happened, it got me into working for a bankruptcy uh, restructuring and consulting firm named Alvarez Marcel, uh, which is like the largest bankruptcy restructuring firm in the world. And uh, first client we had was Lehman Brothers, which was really kind of cool and exciting. Wow. Um, so got right into it. And then uh, from that, uh, Nick Alvarez's son, um, or Tony Alvarez, the founder, his son, Nick, started a private equity group, and I got tapped to join that. And that's how I got into operations. That's how I got into turnaround restructuring work, interim vice presidents of supply chain, et cetera, uh, and then joined Barcala in 2012, uh, which Genpak purchased in 2018. So that's so so the university got me, you know, my 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 grounding um from my father and my family got me to work ethic, you know, of the southeast, you know, Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, hard work ethic, uh, you know, come from nothing, expect nothing, but no one can outwork you but yourself kind of motto. Mm -hmm. And then Dickinson gave me the exposure, you know, into a more global um view of the world. And then fraternity experience at college gave me mentors that put me on a different career path. Uh, which is which is kind of how I got here today. So uh, definitely the black sheep, I would say, of, of the people who came out of me on book high school. Uh, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> I mean, this podcast almost got derailed about JFK research. So we're going to have to have you on again, you know, maybe a couple months from now, and we'll just talk about your dissertation and, and all uh, that. I can go through the whole Ward Commission report, man, just like it was yesterday. I wrote that when I was 18, but I mean, I spent so much time on that. It's unbelievable. That's unreal. That's unreal. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's jump into Genpak, the work that your organization does, and uh, and obviously the role that you serve right now. Yeah, so uh, Genpak is trending to be about $5 billion business process uh, and uh, operational transformation company. So we spun out of General Electric. Uh, when Jack Walsh was CEO of General Electric, he had a Lean Six Sigma team. Uh, this was basically that team. So it went from one uh, company, one business unit of GE, did back office turnaround, Lean Six Sigma, process automation, process standardization improvement. Um, and then that team spun out. Uh, Bain Capital invested in, in Genpak. We started in back office. So FP&A, financial planning analysis. Uh, financial book closure. We still do that for a large portion of uh, the Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies in the world. And then uh, Genpak continued to expand. So we got into enterprise risk, we got into procurement, um, Swiss to pay, we got into order order to cash, sales and commercial. Uh, and Genpak made a bet on supply chain in 2016. Um, and that was is what led them into uh, eventually acquiring Barkali. Um, so now in my role, I have the privilege of leading uh, just shy of about 10,000 people, uh, 400 plus consultants, about 9,500 operators. Um, the consultants help companies define their operating model, help them define their technology stack, implement tools and technology, uh, identify use cases for like machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotic process automation. So a lot of kind of the leading technologies today. And then in a lot of cases, our clients lack talent. Like the well, number one challenge right now from a, a market standpoint is labor availability. And then mm -hmm. people who are analytically inclined and technologically native 
from a skill set standpoint. So we help clients um, support and augment those staffs. You know, in the largest example, you know, we run global planning for all of Europe for Unilever with a 900 plus person team in Katowice, Poland. Um, but we do some other things like we monitor every G jet engine, right? We look for sound and noise oscillation. We try to do predictive maintenance, coordinate techs and service parts so that when the aircraft lands at a gate, if there is an issue with the jet engine, it can either be fixed or repaired uh, to minimize aircraft on ground time and impact the customers. We do that with a 600-person team, primarily out of Bangalore. So we have 19 global operating centers in which we deliver uh, supply chain services, planning, sales and operational planning, um, logistics, TMS, global import trade, manufacturing uh, for a portfolio of about 220 clients today. Man, that was... <laughs> I. I don't know what you get paid, but I know it's well, because that was a lot. Listen, how, how often, I, I this is a, a tangent question, but how cool. often are planes getting worked on that quickly when they land, like where where it's not delayed, customers yeah. don't know, on board, off board, and, and it flies? How often is that happening? So the, big, the biggest value add actually is that if you think about the way uh, airplane networks are set up, like carrier networks, um, they don't stock parts and components in every single airport. So the biggest advantage from this type of work is like if I have a, a United aircraft coming into Atlanta, if I can identify that there's something wrong with that plane, I can proactively get materials or parts shipped from Charlotte, which is a hub, you know, for US Airways as an example, into the Atlanta airport before you even notice it, right? If I have a plane that's coming into like Tampa or Birmingham, Alabama, like there's no Delta components really stashed there um, unless it's like a, a frequent break item, which is very, very low. So getting that material, you know, in transit in parallel to the flight path from Atlanta um, to fix the repair. So that's probably like the biggest benefit. Um, you know, generally, like when you have major jet engine issues, like it's more about identifying that that aircraft's not going to go back out um, it. than it is about trying to mitigate it. But, you know, for a lot of the other components we do outside of GE, uh, where we support airport platforms, which could be anything from, you know, monitor devices, you know, seat belts, you know, seats, like just real simple stuff like that. Most of the times, I'd say you know, 80, 90%, it's, it's not uh, visible to the customer, to the customer, right? So most okay. planes have something worked on uh, during the clean and the layover period. It's very uncommon that everything goes out, you know, without any hitch or out any tricks or, or monitors. Good to know. Um, okay. So prior to 2020, I, I, you know, I made this joke, like supply chain was just the course that we all took in college. You know, it, it, that, that's all it was. I took one of them. Um, I didn't take any, so yeah, that's, that's <laughs> fascinating. I took one. It didn't make any sense. I think I barely got a B minus. Uh, and I said, okay, you know, that's it. I'm, I'm done with supply chain. Then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, the pandemic happens, the world became very quickly and acutely aware of how important global, national, and local supply chains really are. Yep. Tell us about your your life over the past two to three years. Uh, what does that look yeah. like? Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing, right, is uh, supply chain has always been consistently underinvested. You know, mm -hmm. um, if you look at like leading technologies and the sales and commercial end tools like Salesforce, right? Everyone's heard of Salesforce.com, yep. right? 90 plus percent of companies in, in the Fortune 5000 have made an investment in a leading CRM, like customer relationship management tool, Salesforce yep. being an example of that. Microsoft has solutions as well. Um, 
you know, in the last three years. Um, you know, if you look at like advanced planning systems, which is like the core of supply chain, less than 25% of the Fortune 1000 runs a leading uh, advanced planning solution. They run legacy tools such as SAP APO. Most of the work is done in Excel. Um, and the reason for that is generally, you know, supply chain has been viewed as it's, uh, it's a necessary evil, right? I, if you ask Coca-Cola, what do they sell? Most people are going to say soda. Like Coke's going to say, yeah, we sell soda, but in reality, we sell a brand. Right. What's unique about us is our brand. Right. If you go to Unilever, yeah, they sell ice cream and products, but it's it's the brand. It's the it's the view of sustainability. It's their impact on the world is what they drive is differentiation. If you go to like a semiconductor company like Qualcomm, yeah, they have to sell chips at the end of the day. But in reality, like their competitive differentiator is engineering. Right. Whether it's patents. Right. And they make about four to six billion dollars a year in patents alone, patent loyalties. But really, their differentiator isn't in manufacturing chip. Like they don't actually really touch it. They outsource a lot of that manufacturing. It's in the engineering of the design. Um, so I think like a lot of companies, you know, the supply chain is just kind of like the necessary evil to get whatever your competitive differentiator is, whether it's engineering, whether it's marketing, whether it's a brand, you know, whether it's product design, um, to be able to commercialize it into revenue, right? And supply chain is just kind of like the thing that's stuck in the middle. So generally, like it hasn't been that exciting. But to your point. You know, up until the last five or 10 years, there's been very, very few universities that have made supply chain majors like a, you know, a big focus area. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's some that have always been there, like Tennessee and Penn State, you know, Georgia Tech. But, you know, not it, it's not very common. Like we didn't have it at Dickinson, which is, you know, considered a top liberal arts school. Like we didn't have anything in that space at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's not been a focus area from education. It's not necessarily the sexiest part of the business. And it's not viewed as a competitive differentiator, right? It's viewed as basically a cost center. So it generally gets the last investment, you know, when you're looking at how do you spread your scarce resources across the business. Um, you know, it's viewed as something that's, you know, required, but not a driver of growth. Um, and generally, like when there's investments in supply chain, it's how do I drive cost takeout, right? How do I, you know, lean out the network? How do I do better jobs of managing my freight, et cetera? So what COVID really highlighted um, is that's fine, you know, when there's not a lot of volatility. But when there's a lot of volatility and all of a sudden, you know, you look at what's happened since, you know, the 1800s, really, right? Companies have become less and less vertically integrated. Like, you know, Rockefeller owned everything, right? Yep. From source to end product. Yep. Um, very few companies do that today. Like your top semiconductor companies you hear about, NVIDIA, AMD, Qualcomm, like they're really design companies. They don't, they don't fab the wafers. And they outsource the back-end test and assembly to OSACs, right? You look at pharmaceutical companies, right? A lot of times they're doing design and then they work with companies like a Pfizer to actually go develop it, you know, and even like the large pharmaceutical companies like a Novartis, like a lot of manufacturing is done with CMOs. Um, you look at an Apple, right? Or, you know, Bose, right? Great computer electronic companies. They design the product, but then all the manufacturing is outsourced to Flextronics, Celestica, Samita, right? Different EMS or CMs. Um, and that works well, right? When they're able to say, yes, I can accept this purchase order. Yes, I can deliver it on time. But when all that manufacturing and all those nodes of the value chain are outside of your control and you're not controlling what material they're getting, you're not actually even understanding what they're ordering because you don't have visibility to it. You don't control their labor schedules. You don't control, control the volatility in their capacity and their production capability. Um, that starts to impact customers. And when it starts to impact customers, then all of a sudden it's like, I need to invest in supply chain to go fix this because I need better visibility and control. 
Um, yep. And that's really what we've been doing with clients. You know, step one is, is get visibility, right? Step two is, you know, expand control, expand um, coordination outside of your four walls to get better control over the supply chain. Step three is add intelligence and analytics and try to identify where do you have points of failure? Where do you have volatility? And what are different strategies, whether it's portfolio rationalization, network design, inventory strategies, demand shaping, using price to impact, you know, for goods that are uh, price elastic, using price to shape consumer demand around what you can and what you can't supply. Um, but that's kind of like step three. Um, you know, and then step four, which is where companies are all going now, is now how do I digitize that? Because to do all that is great, but if I need to have five or six human handoffs and emails and communications, you know, inside and outside my company, every time I do that, that adds latency to the process. And what happens when I add latency, right, is I add time. And when I add time, I add fewer options to respond to disruptions, and each option generally ends up costing more. So the number of options starts to get smaller, and the ones that are left tend to be more and more and more expensive. Um, and that erodes margin, right? So when you add that to an inflationary environment, you know, it's like, it's it's um, it's a hyper accelerant, right? And as a result, that's where companies are now spending. So, you know, obviously the last three years we've been very busy, um, but now as soon as we kind of got out of like the logistics constraints and the port challenges and the Suez Canal blockages and, you know, not having equipment in Ho Chi Minh to be able to load things onto vessels and not having capacity and having factory shutdowns of COVID, Immediately we turn the corner and now we have, you know, potentially recessionary environments. So we have softening of demand, right? So the volatility has just basically flipped on its side. And in, yep. in the same time, we've added social, economic, geopolitical, uh, so excuse me, geopolitical concerns um, with Russia invading Ukraine, right? Yep. And people think, hey, Ukraine's a small country, doesn't disrupt much. But in reality, like Ukraine's two, that's two factories that drive 47% of the world's uh, certified neon gas for semiconductor manufacturing which goes into every product, right? Yeah. So now companies are saying, okay, what happens with the China-Taiwan situation? How do I drive redundancy in my supply chain so I'm not exposed to more geopolitical concerns? So those are types of things that we've seen, um, but obviously it's kept us very busy. So let's drill into that a little bit. We had Harry Moser, one of the national leaders in reshoring on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. One of the main... And driver. you saw the German chancellor came out today and said that deglobalization is not an acceptable policy, right? That just happened. I did not see that. Yeah, just came out today. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so <laughs> one of the main drivers that uh, of reshoring has been so that can, companies can control their supply chain. Literally what you just said, it's like, where can you go to try and control it a little bit more? Talk to us about maybe one or two clients that have done that, or have you seen yeah. that shift because uh, of COVID? It's, it's absolutely happening. Okay. Um, it's happening in, in two for two facets, really, right? So the first one is, you know, there was a quote from, oh gosh, I'm going to screw it up. I think it was CEO Walpole. Um, but he said, like, the only supply chain I trust is the supply chain I can reach out and touch, right? Yeah. So unless I can physically go walk the plant and see the product coming off the plant line, I don't trust that what I'm being told is going to happen. Okay. Um, there is some of that, right? If you think about, you know, uh, supply chains that are very dependent upon key components, raw materials, sub-assemblies uh, coming from, you know, Asia Pacific, you have a very long carrier time. When you add in, you know, uh, historic, you know, recently experienced constraints in vessel availability and container availability, 
you add blockages and backlogs and import export, like import and exporting product in the US is one of the more complicated and stringent import export countries in the world. Um, you start to say like, okay, is that really the best path, right? If all I have is one way to get it from A to B, which is flying on a plane, in some cases I can't even do that, but if I do, it totally kills the margin of the product. We'll sit and wait 30 to 60 days for it to, you know, sail around the globe, but it's very cheap to do so. Um, you know, is that my best option? So I think that, the, you know, anytime you can shorten the lead time of the end-to-end -end supply chain, uh, it allows you to be more flexible in the near term to changes in demand and supply. You have to place orders, you know, not as far out. Um, you know, and obviously as things become closer, the, you know, the cone of confidence is what we call it, you know, gets smaller and smaller. So like if I'm forecasting eight months out, demand could be from here to here. As it gets to six months, it starts to look like this. Four months, it gets like this. Three months, it gets like this because there's less forecasting. It's more of order backlog. So the the steadiness of the demand gets, gets um, you know, greater and the cone of variability gets smaller. So anytime you can shorten the lead times of your supply chain, it gives you more flexibility. So I think, and it's the same thing like with postponement manufacturing, right? If I can put the color of your phone case on last and I don't have to forecast what color phone you want, right? I can just make the core and then I can allow orders to kind of pull through the product, right? So instead of pushing, I'm, I'm doing more of a pull mechanism. Um, so that that's one reason, right? And I think, you know, some of that's facilitated by COVID. I think the reality is companies have realized that, you know, in omni-channel customer buying, getting it into the right channel, not even getting the right product, but getting into the right channel is continuing and will continue to get more and more complicated. Uh, and in doing so, you need to introduce agility uh, and responsiveness to the supply chain. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to shorten lead times. And, you know, ge ge geographical alignment is a simple way to shorten lead times. The other one, the big one, which I think is unavoidable um, as a result of COVID, as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war, is geopolitical concerns. Um, if you're 100% tied in certain regions and all of a sudden, you know, it started with the Trump administration with some of the trade tariffs, it expanded significantly, you know, with the Biden administration and the, and the war in Russia and Ukraine. Like if you're exposed, um, there's not a real great way to pivot out of that, right? And those can be very long and very painful repivots of the supply chain. So, you know, I think you're going to see both. We're seeing it today. Like we have a, a major equipment manufacturer for, for test and assembly equipment and semiconductor. They did a lot of work in China and a lot of it in California. Um, obviously, now there's a heavy push to get out of China. Um, they've identified um, new showing in Malaysia, right? Because again, a lot of the chips end up in Asia Pacific, particularly routing through or around the coast of Singapore because there's some advantageous trade policies in that area. And if you're looking at the companies that make the wafer, right, TSMC, um, you know, obviously in Asia Pacific, Samsung, obviously in Asia Pacific, um, that's the best place to do Tesla assembly. So it's not like we can take it out of the China region, um, you know, we'll take it out of Hong Kong, but we can, you know, completely and move it to the West Coast. That doesn't make sense. Um, Western Hemisphere. But what we can do is we can look at other areas in Asia Pacific. So one of the big things we're doing for them is helping them completely re-identify a supply base to support uh, manufacturing in Malaysia, right? And and that also adds to some of the, the cost inhibitors that they're seeing in operating in the state of California, right? Which we've also seen that as well. So you have cost in, in inhibitors in the state of California, you have geopolitical zones in China, like that requires kind of a, a new uh, a new showing or a reshoring approach. You know, another big client that we've seen 
um, is actually a Leocon manufacturer. Um, and what we've done is we've moved a lot of the manufacturing into Mexico. Um, it's easy. It allows us to do things by rail. It's less movement of, um, you know, steel from China as an example. Um, and, 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 you know, it's from a time zone standpoint, a logistics standpoint, a transportation standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. And if you look at a lot of the contract manufacturers, you know, like Flextronics, you know, a lot of stuff gets made in Penang, but they have continued to continue to invest in Flex Guadalajara, um, because a lot of that final assembly stuff ends up into, you know, the, um, you know, into Silicon Valley, right? Whether it's for companies like Palo Alto Networks, as an example, you know, using that uh, neoshoring manufacturing in Guadalajara helps helps reduce the lead time as well, um, and also gets you away from some geopolitical concerns. So uh, it's definitely happening. Um, you know, you see companies who have started to try to bring more manufacturing into into country, right? You mm -hmm. the EU has made a big push to try to get semiconductor manufacturing and capabilities inside of the EU. Um, you know, you've seen India, oh, excuse me, Apple um, driving iPhone manufacturing into India, you know, for the first time outside of China. So, you know, you, you're seeing it happen and it's going to continue to happen. So let's talk about semiconductors. Good transition. Our listeners in Ohio are obviously, I mean, it's been the talk of the town up here, um, okay. excited by obviously the huge investment in uh, the Columbus area. We know you're a national leader in the semiconductor supply chain. <laughs> talk to us about this right like what what have you guys been hearing what do the next two three years look like when does this actually affect the supply chain because it's going to be <laughs> yeah. one yeah yeah so uh so everything starts with chips right um you know e the most simple thing like esg i want to go to electric vehicles it's all chip driven right the heart of every sustainability analysis every sustainability effort and initiative is semiconductor chips um every device you have content is going to continue to get denser Right, we're not going to skinny back capabilities of your mobile phone anytime soon. We're not going to skinny back capabilities of your refrigerator anytime soon. Um, as you go to electric cars, you need more and more chips. Um, you know, yes, you need less combustion engines, but you need more and more chips. As you go to autonomous driving, you need more and more sensors. Um, it's not going to change. Um, you know, everything IoT. Right, even if the, it was funny is we were talking about it with some colleagues. Like even the solutions we push, like AI machine learning. It drives up chip demand. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, that's not going anywhere. Um, you know, it's softened a little bit. You know, the, the, the old adage is semiconductors lead us into a recession and lead us out. You're starting to see, you know, from a stock market standpoint, it started to rebound. You know, with regards to the Intel fabs, obviously Intel, Micron, um, Skywater, they're like three of the bigger benefits of the CHIPS Act. It's great to see America put money behind it. It pales in comparison to what other countries do. You know, South Korea is going to spend 450 billion. Like we're going to spend 50, right? So like, at least know, we got 50, man. We got 50. We got but 50. like, like Samsung, Samsung alone is going to spend about 200 billion dollars in the next couple of years just in the Austin, Texas area, right? So like, if you start thinking yeah. about you know the scale of it, but what it does show is it shows that the United States government understands the need to invest in leading technology, not only for job growth. Because this yep. is all higher end job growth. Like, let's not be around the bush, okay? Yep. Um, this is, you know, the, you know, before Austin became a tech capital of the world, the people who ran Samsung Fabs were some of the highest paid people in Austin, right? And that's pure manufacturing work. So this is very uh, high paying work, um, but it's also really important for you know the Department of Defense, for security, for you know um, national defense and weapons systems. Like everything runs on chips. So having the ability 
to control that, you know, inside of the U.S. Um, is really critical. And it also, uh, you know, like anything else, right? It's like when you eliminate lower end jobs and you bring in new technology and capability that's higher end, people then start reskilling to the new jobs that are available, yep. right? So until you automated like, um, you know, some of the things from an agricultural standpoint, right? There was no forcing factor that forced people to go and get a different education. So if we're going to drive people into STEM, which is going to continue to be the leader in economic growth, continue to be the leader in higher paying salaries, um, you know, we have to have forcing factors, right? And chips help do that. They help automate processes that historically would have been, would have been manual and continue to drive more and more demand from an engineering standpoint, which will have a trickle-down effect, not to quote Reaganomics, but will have a trickle-down effect, you know, into the local economy. And we've seen that every time a fab is built somewhere, whether it was, you know, Global Foundries fabs in Burlington's and Fishkill in the Great Northeast, you know, the semiconductor fabrication in Samsung uh, in Austin, Texas, like anywhere you start putting semiconductor fabs, it does raise the cost of living. Uh, it detracts higher-end talent. Um, and then it's, you know, it has a, a ripple effect through the local economy. So I want to follow up on one other thing you mentioned earlier. It's it's one thing for a company to bring their supply chain back from overseas, but how much are we going to see companies attempt to own, you know, you mentioned Rockefeller and like the verticalization right. of it, <laughs> own as much as the supply chain themselves. One example that we've heard floated around is Amazon trying to get their own port on both coasts. Like that's an extreme example but yeah. are companies going to invest in just trying to own as much of it as they can or no? Uh, I would say that there's some companies who are definitely looking to do that. But I think um, in the near showing example, like I gave an example of a rail company where they're basically uh, doing all sub-assembly manufacturing in Mexico. Um, most companies, I think, realize that um, manual labor of manufacturing and assembly is the lowest margin portion of their product. Right. The engineering, the product design, um, you know, marketing, the branding, that's really where a lot of the margin sits and companies will continue to make investments in that space. I think what you'll see is you'll see more uh, localization of manufacturing and supplying components, fabrication, et cetera, coming in the U.S. for the nearshoring capability, more so than you're going to see companies say, I want to be more vertically integrated downstream. Um, I think you'll, what we've already started to see, you know, with leading companies like Apple and Google, we've seen redundancy in supply chain where they now found two or three different suppliers that are not necessarily as dependent upon one. Um, yeah. More so than they say like, hey, now we're going to take this in-house. Um, you know, if you if you use semiconductor as a leading industry or you look at pharmaceuticals as another big one, you know, or CPG, right? They're not going to say, okay, now we're going to start fabbing our own wafers or doing our own OSAT test and assembly work. Uh, in semi, like I don't see Mosby going out and say I no longer want to use Coman Copacs. Like I want to do all that work myself. It it just doesn't make sense. Like the the economics don't make sense for it. Um, and I don't I don't foresee that happening. I mean, okay. you know, we've seen it happen on like real small scales. Um, you know, Amazon and the poor thing. You know, slightly different point. You know, you look at it like the Amazons, the Googles, the Microsofts, like the big four. You know, they can kind of enter they any can industry do it. they want. Right. I mean, and when you when you have enough, like we worked with Party City, um, when you have enough product that you need to move, like you can go buy your own vessel. Right. Like, you know, just go get it and get the product here so that it doesn't disrupt Halloween. Um, so when yeah. you have it at that volume, buying and owning components of the logistics supply chain, absolutely. I see companies doing that. 
whether yeah. that's ports, whether that's warehouses, whether that's their own trucks, you know, Amazon's at the forefront of that. If they can yeah. control the logistics supply chain, I see companies doing that. Most companies don't have the volume to afford it. What I don't see a lot of companies going towards is trying to take over vertical integration and manufacturing. Got it. it just it just doesn't work with multiples today, you know, particularly for publicly traded companies. Got it. Well, listen, man, this was fantastic. Uh, we're gonna get you out of here with a with a softball, but um, we're we're definitely definitely need to have you on again, whether we talk about JFK or not. Um, so I know you're you're based down in Austin. Barbecue is is king down there. <laughs> give us give us the best barbecue if people are visiting Austin. What do we got? Oh my gosh! So I actually have so Greg and I, as you mentioned, Greg before, we actually maintain a list of like Ooh. all the restaurants in Austin. So like at any time someone wants to come to Austin, I don't know if you can see it. Drop drop the top three. It's drop literally three. a list of every single thing. So I mean, obviously you start with Franklin's, right? So Franklin's barbecue, you know, consistently considered one of the best barbecues in the world. Um, you know, you got to wake up at five or six in the morning, you take your lawn chairs out, your coolers, you hang out, you wait and by like 1030, they're, they're out of meat. Um, so if you're not in line by like 645, 7am, you know, you're, you're basically SOL. Um, and if you do it on a big weekend, like Austin city limits, you gotta be there like 530. Uh, I have never done that. I've had someone on my team do it for us, but I have never woke up at 5am to sit there. So I've eaten it once. It was worth it. I don't know if I'd wake up at 5am. Um, <laughs> if you were to back off of that, uh, law barbecue, LA barbecue, I think okay. is really good. That could be like a 30 minute to an hour and a half wait. That ain't bad. Um, and then one that you don't have to wait as much is right on, it's right on town lake, right on Ladyburg Lake, it's Terry Black's. Um, yeah, so it's, classic. it's kind of like, you know, my go-to when I just want to have something that's, you know, significantly above average and I'm not in the mood to wait, you know, yep. 90 minutes for a guy to shack my ribs. So. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Terry, I've only had Terry Black's, but I think I had it in Dallas, but um, that's a good list. All right. Uh, Well, listen, man, we, we really appreciate you coming on. This was fantastic. Um, You know, I think our, our listeners and our viewers are going to learn a ton. We will definitely have you on again. Good luck with everything the rest of the year. Have a good holiday season and uh, we'll talk with you soon. Yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. Appreciate being on. I'm happy to come back anytime. And uh, you know, we really uh, appreciate the work that you and Taylor and the team are doing with us about recruiting and continuing to, you know, make sure people have great opportunities. Like, cause all companies, myself, my clients, you know, number one challenge we have is finding good people um, yep. and good talent, you know, and, and coming from, you know, the Northeast, you know, I, I feel like there's a great uh, work ethic uh, yep. across that, that, that demographic of people. Um, and it's great to see that, you know, now engineering and high tech STEM jobs and semiconductor, you know, are investing in the area, um, you know, which, you know, has been has been a little bit depleted, you know, since the coal mines and everything else kind of disappeared, which is what I grew up with. Right. So yep. um, really excited in the area. Uh, appreciate the work you guys are doing to give people opportunities. And thank you so much for having me on tonight. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.